If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Positive affirmations are everywhere. They're like in every book. Everybody recommends them. And once I started looking at the research on affirmations, it's like, wow, there's really not that much of it. And it's kind of weak. And so what I have found and what I have read is that positive affirmations typically work best for the people who don't really need them. So people who already feel relatively good about themselves, it feels good to say that back to yourself. If you are depressed, the positive affirmations tend to not have as great of an impact because you can tell that you're lying to yourself. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. Today on the show, I have someone who leads with radical, honest content that challenges toxic positivity. I'm interviewing Whitney Goodman, who many feel is a breath of fresh air in this busy mental health conversation that can often promote unattainable positivity. Whitney, on the other hand, is the woman behind her viral Instagram account, Sit With Wit, and she is also a licensed psychotherapist and writer. She has a brand new book coming out called Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a world obsessed with positive thinking. And this book really explores a lot of the BS we see online. When I was reading it, I just kept thinking, thank God, someone has officially broken down how ridiculous this idea that if you just think happy, everything will become a possibility. Now, I obviously love positive energy and I've interviewed some incredible people around the idea of manifestation and thoughts become things, but I love how Whitney brings nuance to this conversation. Whitney explores with tremendous research and using her own experiences as a therapist to show why these approaches can be extremely harmful to our mental health and alternatively suggests a more realistic and perhaps a more authentic way to move through life, heal and create an experience that is honest and still deeply fulfilling. What's a quote you attend to often and why? So I'm not sure I have a specific favorite quote, but I'm really drawn to any work on embracing our imperfections. I've been following a lot of poetry accounts lately as well and motherhood that have been super helpful to me. Why do you think you were drawn to those sorts of quotes or why do you think you've been drawn to the poetry recently? I feel like on social media for such a long time, and, and this is part of my work, it was a lot of perfection, right? And that's what we were being shown and, and what we were striving for. And lately I'm seeing, at least in the space that I'm in online, that there's been such a shift 
towards embracing like the messy parts of life and talking about them that for me, I'm like, when I see someone who shares my experience, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the best thing I've read today um, because we're not used to seeing that online. It's so true. I find that that's probably the reason I find most memes amusing is when they kind <laughs> of really hit the truth of, you know, mostly that we're not willing to really quite identify. Yes. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of and why? Oh gosh, that nothing is really permanent for me. I've been, you know, as I became a mom, I wrote a book, all these things. I've been sucked into these moments that feel like they're forever and trying to remind myself of like, this is going to end at some point. This feeling has been so powerful. And how do you manage that? Because I think when we consider the impermanence of life, I think often that can be reassuring if you're going through a bad time, but then I think it can be quite scary if you're going through a good time and you're like, oh no, I don't want to think this is going to end. Yeah, it's so true. Even like with my son at his age now, I'm like, oh, but this is so nice and it's not going to stay like this. That I feel like for me, it's important to remember that impermanence of like, okay, I want to soak this up. I want to remember it. And there's also going to be more good things ahead that I don't know about yet because I didn't know that this was coming and that this would be this way. And how do you understand the soul? To me, the the soul is really um, what makes us who we are. I'm not an extremely spiritual person. So I think I see the soul as also like our personality, what's important to us, who we are as people. And to me, it's like the deepest part of you. That's a really lovely answer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to dive in to your book because as I said in the introduction, it is such a breath of fresh air. Was there any part of you that was nervous about writing this book? And what was the driver that made you go, yes, this needs to be in the world? I definitely was a little nervous about putting it out there just because I think there are a lot of people who make the majority of their income off of selling this type of rhetoric. And so there can be (laughs) some pushback there. What I will say is I've been talking about this topic for a few years on social media. So I have some experience with the pushback. And really what was the driving force was I saw so many people telling me like, I've been looking for a word for this all my life, or I've been trying to name this experience, or I felt like I was alone in it, that I thought to myself, this is something we definitely have to talk about if that many people are saying that. So let's just get really simple and basic. What do you even mean when you say toxic positivity? Toxic positivity is the unrelenting pressure to be happy or positive or be pursuing happiness and positivity all the time, no matter what the circumstances are. And this is something that we do to ourselves. It's a pressure we put on other people. And it's also a cultural or worldwide phenomenon that I think we've all been kind of indoctrinated into. I mean, I thought it was fascinating, actually, when you go through the last 100 years of literature that has contributed to where we've got to now with this toxic positivity trend. I would love to hear from your perspective, which books in particular are huge culprits in selling the dream of positive thinking? 
Yeah. So we see this happening or really getting its start in religion. And then there are the books like The Power of Positive Thinking, you know, Norman Vincent Peale, we have The Secret, books like that, that are tremendously popular. And and I understand why they are, but they've certainly sold us this promise that you're always just one thought away from the life that you want. I mean, when you mentioned The Secret, it's kind of had this revival. And I love how your book addresses that it can actually create so much self-blame. And why is that the case? Why is toxic positivity harmful for people? What I've seen in my practice is that the majority of people who kind of get sucked into these beliefs, they end up having this feeling of like, I am the reason why everything bad has happened to me. And we know that personal responsibility is huge. People need to take responsibility for their actions, but there are certain things that just happen. Mm. And, you know, I've seen this rhetoric kind of weaponized to teach people that if you were assaulted, it was your fault. If you got sick, you know, if you got cancer, it was your fault. And it was all based in this, like your thoughts got you there. And I've seen that become really scary and damaging for people. I guess on the other side of that is that being negative has then kind of been presented as a sinful thing. You know, you mustn't be negative and we blame ourselves if we're negative. Why is this habit troubling? So negativity is not all bad. Of course, like with anything, if we have a fully just negative thoughts all the time and negative experiences, it's not going to be good. But negative feelings or thoughts can actually be a huge driver of creativity. They help us connect. They tell us when we need to make a change in our life. So if we suppress all of that and we're only seeking positive experiences, we miss out on all of that data and all of the meaning that can be found there. Couldn't agree more. And this reminded me of a conversation I had yesterday with a friend who was, you know, going on about like all the things that weren't really working in their business you know, and I heard them say to themselves, oh, no, no, I must not be negative. And they kind of then immediately switched to, I should be grateful that I even have a business, like la, 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 la. And it was interesting because I read your book like a few hours before and I thought oh, there was so much data, so much mm-hmm. rich information from them going through what wasn't quite working. And I really appreciated how you actually included the workplace in your book because I think often we are talking about mental health in a silo away from actually these very real world scenarios that we're in that are highly triggering for our mental health in many ways. How does toxic positivity play out in the workplace? And where, in your opinion, is this most worrying? Often in the workplace, what we see is that leaders are trying to create consensus in the workplace. They want everyone to be positive and happy and agreeable. And this is usually because those types of people are easier to manage there's not as much disruption. What happens when we try to promote this like group thing or consensus at all costs is that then nobody can talk about what isn't working. Like you just mentioned, they're considered not a team player or like they're going against the cause. And we miss out again on all that data to create solutions, to problem solve, maybe to help certain people move up in the company whose voices aren't being heard. And also just for creativity. You know, if there's something like wrong with the iPhone and we don't talk about the problems with it, we're never going to get anything new. 
it's really interesting. I'm going to read. I actually sent this quote to a firm because I thought it was so good. But you write, the pressure to maintain a facade of positivity makes employees less happy, stifles creativity and keeps the business stuck. We really need negativity in the workplace. And it's quite dangerous if we eliminate it, especially in creative industries. How then can you disagree and be negative in a productive way? Because as mm-hmm. you said, there is a difference between someone just complaining about coffee flavors, I think is the example you use. I think when the workplace has a structured approach to problem solving, it can be very helpful. So that means having specific meeting times, places where complaints can be delivered, a system for that type of like disagreement or negativity, it's very helpful. We also have to think about, okay, if I'm going to complain about this or talk about this, who is the right person to go to? What is the best way to solve this problem? Because bringing up something in a meeting where it doesn't fit might just cause, you know, more chaos, more disagreement. Instead of saying, this is probably the best thing for me to bring to HR or to my boss or to the person I work with and really being very deliberate about that. The nuance in this conversation, that is where the challenge lies, because I'm sure a lot of people could use your work to validate their negativity. And what would be your advice from a personal standpoint? What is helpful negativity? What is helpful complaining? And when does it become this stuck in a loop situation? So helpful negativity and helpful complaining has some type of purpose. And that purpose might be even to connect with other people. You know, we often create bonds through complaining or going through the same experiences. You might be complaining or being negative to get a solution to a problem, to change something. I think people are entitled really to be as negative or complaining as they want to be. It's just, you have to think about what's going to be the impact of that. How is this going to affect my relationships? Is it working out for me? You know, how am I sleeping at night? How am I getting through the day? (laughs) And then think about, is this how I want to live my life? You know, something that you just mentioned there, it can be bonding when you're complaining with someone. And I think when people are being, I don't know, bitchy about someone, they don't actually necessarily mean the mean words that they're saying. It's this attempt to bond with the person they're with. What are your thoughts about that? I think there's a big difference between like, gossiping or being cruel or talking about someone as a way of bonding versus like complaining. The type of complaining I'm thinking about is like when you go through an experience. So if you work in an office, you might all kind of complain about your boss or what's going on there. And that can be a unifying factor. Or when I became a mom, you know, listening to other moms talk about their negative experience made me feel like I was part of a group. And so complaining in that way is unifying, I think, without tearing anyone down Mm. or being mean. Yeah, I think that's a helpful clarification. I'm really interested in the part of your book when you address how positive thinking has been linked to health outcomes. And again, this is a really fine line because I recently just finished the book Cured by Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. He's a Harvard psychiatrist and has spent the last 20 years researching into spontaneous healing. And obviously a part of his book does look at the literature around how our belief system and thoughts contribute to health outcomes. 
And then obviously your book looks at the opposite research that sees the dangers of this. I would love to hear your discussion and how you think about the two spectrums of the equation. Yeah, you know, this is one of those areas where I think two things can be true at once. I think there are multiple scenarios where the mind has been instrumental in helping someone get well. Where I think it gets dicey is that sometimes we're looking at like correlation versus causation. We're not really sure exactly what caused what, and we can't necessarily piece out all of those variables. And so I never want anyone to feel like there is something wrong with them because they couldn't use their mind to cure themselves. That to me, doesn't mean that we can't empower people to use their mental capacity to navigate the healthcare system, to navigate their disease and make informed choices for themselves. And I think you have to have some level of positivity or optimism to be able to do that. Otherwise people would just say, well, I'm not going to do anything about this and I'm just going to die or whatever it is that they're dealing with. And that's not healthy either. What was the research that you found to support the more tenuous links between this idea of positive thinking and healthy bodies? So the majority of the research that I read and and sort of overviews of the research really shows us that we can tell that the mind is useful in helping people stay engaged in their treatment um, and helping people look for new solutions, but not, we haven't been able to prove that positive people get well faster or do they just not get sick as much? And are they positive because they don't get sick as much? You know, we we don't know the direction of the relationship is the problem based on that research. And so it's difficult for me to say like, yes, we can use our minds to cure ourselves. Does it happen sometimes? Maybe, but I don't know that it's enough evidence to sort of like prescribe it to a large population. This obviously then links into affirmations and mental health. I think for the last 30 years, the rise of the science of happiness and positive psychology, we've seen an enormous amount of tools and literature and research studies in some ways support this idea of positive thinking, um, supporting better mental health. Why do you think that this isn't so clear cut as some other people would believe. It's kind of wild because I think positive affirmations are everywhere. They're like in every book, everybody recommends them. And once I started, I I also just kind of drank the Kool-Aid because it was told to me to do it. And once I started looking at the research on affirmations, it's like, wow, there's really not that much of it. And it's kind of weak what we do see. And so what I have found and what I have read is that positive affirmations typically work best for the people who don't really need them. So people who already feel relatively good about themselves, it feels good to say that back to yourself, (laughs) right? Like I love myself. Cool. Um, If you are depressed, um, if you're feeling negatively about yourself, the positive affirmations tend to not have as great of an impact because you can tell that you're lying to yourself. And so what I really am recommending through this book is just to make the affirmations more believable and achievable for you instead of using these types that do not feel at all true. That makes a lot of sense. 
How is shame often disguised as positivity? So we use positivity as a way to shame ourselves a lot, I think. And the way this can sound is like, I know I should be grateful, but at least it's not this. We do this thing where it's like, if you're feeling a bad feeling, you try to shame. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Yourself into feeling more positive and it's not effective. What are the most abysmal positive statements that people <laughs> often give in these scenarios and what do you suggest otherwise? The biggest defenders for me are definitely everything happens for a reason, It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. At least it's not that. Be grateful it's not this. Instead, I really recommend that people try to focus on seeking understanding and validating and showing compassion. And what that really looks like is just validating and mirroring back to the other person what they're saying. So if someone's saying, I'm going through this and it's really difficult... That does sound really hard. I can imagine X would be difficult. You can seek understanding by asking, what's the hardest part for you? What have you been struggling with? Have you tried anything new to help you with this? Like really just learning about the person's experience. And compassion to me is just being there, listening, and being non judgmental. How do you support people then expressing true emotions? Because I think. Often we are very good at going into the office and someone saying, how are you? And we just respond with, I'm great. I'm great. Because in a way, we just want to make it easier for other people. Like, do they really want to hear about my difficult weekend that they can't really do anything about? And it makes people feel deeply uncomfortable. So we've habitualized ourselves to just to shut up in many situations. And you do have a whole section in the book around holding space for others. But I'd love to ask you about that. What is your advice for people handling difficult emotions, especially when it's triggering for yourself to hear it in another? This is an area where practice, I think, is really the only way to get through it and exposing yourself to other emotions. So many people grew up in households where they were told to silence themselves when they were feeling something. And so that's just, we have no tolerance built up for emotional expression. If I can learn, you know, to sit with my spouse when they're crying and like breathe through it and tell myself like, it's okay if they're upset, I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to fix it. I can just be with them. And once you learn through that exposure that nothing bad's going to happen, 
if I sit with this person while they're experiencing an emotion, it gets easier over time. Why do you think we have such a reflex to fix or to immediately jump to the positive? I feel like it's something that's just been conditioned in us, you know, throughout our lifetime. We were taught, I know I was taught this, that certain emotions are bad and what you're trying to do is get rid of them and not feel them and not have them. And so when you grow up with that belief and you see someone going through something negative or bad in your belief system, it's like, okay, I need to get this person to happiness. I need to get them to feel better. And when that's always the end goal, you're going to rush people through and try to fix things for them every time. So what would you say the steps to becoming less addicted to fixing and helping? I think first admitting to yourself that you cannot fix other people. You can only be there for them and support them is so powerful. I know that's a lesson that took me many years to learn. (laughs) And when you come from that foundation, you're able to then move into this place of, okay, if I'm just going to serve this person to be a companion to them, what will that look like? How can I walk with them instead of trying to be the person up here that is fixing them or doing something for them. I feel like when you're coming from that place, it's much easier to abandon those fixing behaviors. It's interesting because there is an element of control, I think maybe subconsciously. I don't think anyone fixes thinking that they are trying to control a situation, but the hierarchy between two people becomes quite unbalanced in many ways when you try to move into the role of fixing. It absolutely does. And I think this is something I had to learn as a therapist was I am, yes, the professional, the one that they're coming to in that role, but the power differential needs to not be that extreme. We have to find ways where I can say, yes, I have this material knowledge maybe, or maybe because I'm not emotional, I can see what you could or should do. But I know that you actually have the power over your situation. I know that you're the one in the driver's seat. So I'm just going to be here with you side by side instead of me leading you somewhere. In couples therapy, where do you often see toxic positivity arising? And where do you try to lead them in, in a better direction and how? The number one thing I hear is I just want them to listen and they want to fix it. <laughs> And I think this has, it it can be gendered sometimes where I often see the male partner in heterosexual relationships trying to fix and the woman wants to be listened to, Mm. but I'm finding more and more that that's kind of occurring across gender lines. And of course, in different types of relationships. So it's a process of teaching people, okay, how can I sit with my partner's experience Just listen to them, not offer suggestions, and even ask them, do you want advice or do you just want me to listen? Such a good question. You talk about complaining effectively in the book, and we've touched upon this earlier in the interview. And one quote I really loved was when you wrote, complaining can expand our view of our psyche. What do you mean by that? I think complaining gives us a view into what is important to us, what needs to change, and maybe what we are missing in our life or in our relationships. How can you gently encourage someone to break their complaining cycle? Or do you not think that is possible for someone to do? 
all we can do is control our role in that complaining cycle. And so if someone continues complaining to you about something and you no longer want to participate in it, you can say to them, you know, I can really tell you're going through a hard time. I feel like I'm not the best person to help you with this right now. You can tell them that you're not able to to talk to them anymore because it's triggering for you in some way, whatever it is, but you have to be responsible for setting that boundary with their complaining. I don't think we can make people stop complaining. Do you think complaining is almost becomes an addiction of some sorts? What I find is that people who get stuck in complaining, who complain a lot, are typically the people who feel unheard, unseen, unrecognized. And I've even noticed like once I get people in therapy who will complain about everything, that once I just listen to them and give them a space to do that for a little while, Mm -hmm. they transition out of that behavior because they're not like yelling into the void trying to be heard. Yeah, it's really, really powerful, actually, observation and something that we can all work on giving more patience and, and ears to the people around us. I particularly enjoy your suggestion of whooping over manifesting. <laughs> what is a whoop approach to creating a life you want? And why do you favor this over manifestation? Yes, yeah, so um, the whoop tool is from... Dr. Ottengen, I always butcher that name, Um, but it is wonderful. So you're really looking at like, what is your wish? What do you want to happen? What are the opportunities? What, What tools do you have around you to make that happen? And you're also looking at obstacles, which I think is not present in a lot of manifestation texts, is looking at what could go wrong and coming up with a plan to attack that wish and move forward and thinking about like, what do I have access to? And also what's going to go wrong or what could go wrong. And it's interesting when you actually force yourself to think about what could go wrong. I think this brings up this really important idea I wanted to discuss with you that a lot of people can actually just be terrified of negativity. They stay in toxic positivity just because the thought of something going wrong is too hard for them to handle. If you are someone who deep down is scared of negativity, what's your advice? And and why do you think we have become scared of negativity? Being scared of negativity is, I think, a direct consequence of like our cultural obsession with positivity. I've seen it in clients where it almost presents like um, obsessive compulsive disorder where people become so obsessed with their thoughts and the potential for something to go wrong if they're thinking negatively that I would encourage anybody feeling that way to first definitely seek help through therapy because I think doing some exposure to negativity and negative thoughts and realizing that nothing is going to happen can be really helpful I also want to empower people to realize that when you look at the negative things or the problems, we're just creating opportunities for you to step up and solve them rather than being surprised when they happen. And that's a big consequence that I see of too much positive thinking is that those people do not know how to react or solve problems when they come up. When I was reading your book, I was reminded of almost quite... um 
a flavor of stoicism in it because it's very stoic to go what's the worst that could happen almost take yourself to that <laughs> terrible state of just everything falling down and thinking to yourself well what would be your plan then so a couple of people have said that to me about stoicism and I did not make that connection <laughs> when I was writing the book but now I'm going back and learning about that and I I think it can be very powerful to ask yourself that question because a lot of people might be surprised with how much they know what they would do if that happened. And I think this links to, and something I'd also love to hear your thoughts on, is often positive thinking gives us the illusion of hope and control. And that's something that you wrote. How does it do that? Why do you think sometimes we fall into these positivity traps actually as a way for us to claim control? That's the number one reason I believe that this positivity has spread so widely is that when people read these books, they're being told, if I just control my thoughts enough, I will get everything I want. If I control my thoughts and think positively and manifest, I will be healthy. I'll be happy. I will be rich. That is a tall order. That sounds lovely. (laughs) And I think most people in the world are searching for that one thing that's going to give them that. If you could speak to every 21-year-old, what would that message be? Oh gosh, don't be so hard on yourself and allow yourself to just live in the moment at this age. I, I think there's so much pressure to figure everything out when you're 21 and it's okay to just be. How do you think about the difference between people who are just going through a naturally hard time in life because you know shit happens and life is thrown a really awful rainstorm and those who are actually depressed because I think that in this current conversation we have so many different words flying around from I feel so depressed today I'm feeling so anxious and obviously that is murking the waters and also taking away this idea of the spectrum. That's certainly a downside of like the popularization of mental health terms. I personally treat everybody the same and kind of look at what are the symptoms that you're experiencing? What is going on in your life to contribute to these symptoms? And what do we need to do or change to help you feel like your life is going more in the direction that you want it to be? What are your thoughts about the pressure to be likable? It's so easy to fall into the trap of wanting to be likable, right? Especially with social media and the way things in our world operate today that I think it can put an immense amount of pressure on people. There's so much freedom in realizing, and I'm still working on this, that you are not going to be likable to everyone. And no matter how hard you try to shape shift or morph yourself, there are always going to be people that don't accept that version of you. You know, in all these business books or how to get ahead in your career, they mentioned, you know, be likable, be positive, and that will help you. And to a degree, that does help you. Like fundamentally, if someone is easy to get along with, they're probably going to be given a promotion just because that's the way human beings work, I guess. So even if we don't naturally feel very positive one day, we kind of just put a smile on our face in order to get to where we want to get to if we do have those sorts of career aspirations. And then many people don't. But what are your thoughts about at what point do you compromise? And at what point do you stay authentic? 
there's a big difference between like suppressing and, and shutting down everything you're feeling all the time and needing to do it to fit a certain scenario to get a result that you want when you have other support outside of that. So if you have to put on a face at work, but you're able to come home and talk about it with a family member or a friend, I think it can kind of counterbalance that. What I will say that I think the pressure to be positive in business circles is very gendered. I feel like women are under so much pressure to smile and be happy. And I know a lot of like male CEOs that are actually very grumpy and mean. (laughs) So it's not always the case. I think that that is what equals success. Yeah, gosh, it's so interesting when you think about the gendered conversation around toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. How do you think this has become so gendered? I think there's always been a pressure on women to smile, to be happy, to be polite, and, and to suppress anything negative because then you're seen as being complaining or nagging. And that can stick with you. I notice anytime a woman is complaining online, especially about motherhood or working, there's so much like criticism of that. Where do you think the criticism is coming from? Why do you think that is so triggering for people? I see a lot of women being triggered by it. And I think that might be because they are suppressing their complaints so Mm. much. And and maybe they wish they could share, they think it's inappropriate. Some people I think just don't know what it's like to deal with certain situations. So they criticize them instead of trying to understand Mm. why it might be difficult. And why do you think we jump to criticism before understanding? Like, I'm trying to understand where that even comes from and why. I agree. You know, it's it's a behavioral pattern that I think could have been modeled and picked up when you grow up in a home that is highly critical or criticism is common. I also think it's people just sometimes with black and white thinking of like, this is the way things are. And I don't have any room for information that contradicts that. If you know someone who is a black and white thinker, is there anything that you can do to try to move them slightly into gray? Or do you just have to accept that they are a black and white thinker? I think you accept it, you know, as a foundation of like, this is how this person is. And if they want to change, great. But I also think you can model some of that gray thinking by showing how you are changing your mind, talking about things in a nuanced way, being open to having discussions about things that can be helpful. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. You know, the word that comes to mind, it's just so nuanced. And so thank you for bringing a really refined and nuanced conversation. I guess my last question is, why now? People have become very exhausted. I think of the rhetoric of like, you can solve everything yourself and just think your problems away. I noticed that After the start of the pandemic, there was a huge shift in what people were willing to accept. And I thought, you know, this is the time to kind of talk about this topic and and change the way we approach these issues. Well, thank you for bringing a refreshing and different conversation to, I think, what we see over and over again in lots of the books sold. Where is the best place for people to find your book? Do you host workshops or courses or where is the best place to ask questions? You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at sit with wit. 
through there, you'll be able to find links to my website, all my courses and workbooks, and my book, Toxic Positivity, is sold anywhere books are sold. Amazing. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your work and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.